nine years ago, two days ago, I preached for the very first time here at Emmanuel Baptist Church, if you have a call, and I think uh, we had a vote, and uh, it was 900 and something people voted, about 98%, something like that, Brother Andy, voted to affirm uh, God's call here, and uh, I uh, watched the tape, uh, actually the, the DVD, uh, last week and uh, showed it to Mark in his office uh, during the week, and we kind of took a long laugh at it. We have really changed a lot in the last nine years, I would say. Some of you have been here and some of you have not. And the reason I bring that up today is because I remember preaching my very first sermon ever many, many decades ago, because <clears throat> I'm getting older, and uh, I preached it at Sunny Glen Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas, and uh, Jeff Pritchard was the pastor at Sunny Glen Baptist Church. Uh, he was an elderly man at the time. He had been there a long time. I mean elderly man. He was probably, when I preached there, he was probably getting close to 80 years old. Now, I don't consider that old anymore because the closer I get to that, the younger it looks. Can I get an amen from some of you out there? It's amazing how our definition of age changes, doesn't it? But anyway... And uh, so I, I, I got up, I had prepared for, you know, like, like two weeks, and I knew I had a 40-minute a sermon, and to my surprise, I got up and got finished in about 10 minutes. And I remember Brother Jeff and his, and his, just his generosity and his grace. He got up when I was done, and he said, well, that was interesting. Now open your Bibles, and he preached after I got done. Yeah. And uh, I have come a long way since then, have I not? I've gone from 10 minutes to about 40 minutes. It's kind of my standard. Mike, you're in the wrong place today. You're, you're messing me up, dude. But anyway, so, uh, you know, so we, we do progress. But I remember Jeff Pritchard. Uh, I remember being at a pastor's conference and standing there and, and uh, noticing later on when I was pastoring how much he had aged since that first sermon in his church at Sunny Glen Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas. But I remember what they did to him in that church. My brother Jeff had been pastor there for about three plus decades. And they decided that he was too old to preach anymore. The church did. And uh, they, they encouraged him to vacate the pulpit. And I remember one of the complaints that, that, that was sort of brought forth in the reason why they wanted him to retire. Someone said, you know, the only message Brother Jeff preaches is the gospel. We have heard for 30 plus years the gospel. We are tired of hearing about the gospel and we want to hear about other things. I have a problem with that. I do. Um, I, I, wanna, I don't want to quote it wrongly, so I'm going to read it on my little notes here. It's not in, on the outline, but Ephesians 2.7 says, talks about the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ. The immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ. 
Paul writes continually, constantly in all of his letters to the church about the immeasurable richness that is found through the gospel of Jesus Christ. You cannot separate the gospel and Jesus. It is the gospel that God has used for the proclamation of the gospel as we heard it. The Spirit created us faith to move from where we are and to then use that means by which we not only came to know Jesus, but now we have come to know through Christ the immeasurable riches that are available to us through Christ. And immeasurable means simply this, that you cannot ever exhaust the immeasurable riches that are found in the person of Jesus Christ discovered through the gospel. They are new every morning. And when you think that you have reached the pinnacle and there's nothing more that you can discover or learn or apply or grow from in the richness that is found in the gospel, he opens your understanding, he opens your mind, and he opens your heart, and he reveals and he peels away one more layer of the gospel, and you walk away going, wow, I can't imagine that's there. There's no way in the world that God could ever top this off. But he does. For the gospel is that bridge, it's that means, it's, it's, it's the message that God has used to not only introduce us to Jesus, but it is the message that continues to permeate through every aspect of our lives, and it moves us, and it, and it weaves its fabric into every part of our being, so that as we study it, and as we read it, and as we learn from it, and he gives us insight, we grow immeasurably more and more and more and more in love with him, understanding more about what he has done, what's available, and his power in us through the gospel that comes through Jesus. The message of Jesus, the gospel has power. Not in and of itself, but it has power as a message in which it conveys to us and communicates to us the work that God did through Jesus Christ. And as we discover that message, we have a tendency, listen to me, we have a tendency as believers to do this. You know, I, I, I know all there is to know about the gospel. We, we, we have confined it to the four spiritual laws, and they're like four steps that we somehow we grow to, to learn, we, we use in our gospel presentation, and, and, and we have come to somehow understand and somewhere believe. I don't know why we have come to believe that, but, but once we hear the four, the four gospel points and we receive Jesus through repentance, that's all, that's all the gospel is. Now we can move on to other things. Now we need to move on to richer things. I'm a, there's nothing richer and nothing more immeasurable in the discovery of the person of Jesus than his gospel. You cannot exhaust your understanding and your insight in the gospel and how it weaves its way into your lives and how it works its way out in every relationship that you have with yourself, with God, with your spouse, with your children, and with your family. And the church today has gotten away from that fabric of the gospel being weaved into our, our relationship with God and our relationship with Jesus and our relationship as a community of faith and our relationship with our, our biological family. It is the gospel that makes all the difference. And the reason why we're having such difficulty in the church today is because there is a lack of understanding of what the gospel means and a lack of applying the gospel and its truths into our lives. Because if we understood it, we would choose, we would live different lives today. 
And we're going to start a series about the power of the gospel. And I'm going to encourage you not to miss. And I'm not sure how long it's going to last. Because I, I, have, I have racked my brain for the last two to three weeks trying to figure out how we're going to do this in like a four-week study or a six-week study or whatever. It may be a whole fall study. I'm not really quite sure. It may last four or five months. Because I'm convinced that, that, that the immeasurable riches that are found and available to us in discovering who the person of Jesus is and how we become intimately connected with him through the gospel and how that relationship grows through him it is critical to how we live out our lives, especially in these difficult days. And Satan has robbed the church today of the power of the gospel. And he has confined it to a little quick prayer that we pray. And once we pray, it, we get baptized, and then we go on to other things. And I think that's the biggest mistake that churches make today and individual believers make today. So we're going to sort of launch this series with the one passage that's found in Romans 1, 16 and 17. We're going to dive into here for the next two or three weeks at least in regard to this passage. We're going to dissect it little by little, and we're going to work through this, and then after we get through this, we'll move on to some other things because there, there's just so much available to us through the gospel. And I'm, I'm convinced that, that when we understand it, we learn it, and we grow in it, it will impact us and change us, not only individually, not only our families, not our relationships, but it will transform our church, and it will transform our message. It's that life-changing. And so we're going to walk through this together. Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and then also to the Greek, for in the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. We're going to take the first phrase today, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm convinced that there are many today, self-professing, honest, believing disciples of Jesus who love Christ, who have committed their hearts and lives to him. Don't move that to that yet. I'm not quite there yet. Back up. There you go. Wait for me. Where was I? I'm sorry. I saw that change and said, not yet. We're ashamed of the gospel. We're ashamed of the gospel. And that's the reason why we often don't share the gospel. Because the world that we live in today said, you really believe that? Really? That's not PC. That's not politically correct. The world that we live in is anti the gospel. It is against the gospel. It is not pro the gospel. It wants to silence the gospel. And the world that we live in will inflict shame upon us in order to silence our witness. And I'm convinced that many of us are not witnessing, not because we don't know what the four spiritual laws are. It's not because we don't have a testimony, because we're afraid if we do, we're going to be shamed into 
what we actually believe, and that shame is going to silence us because we're afraid we're going to lose some friends, lose some influence, lose something that we believe is of importance, when the reality is there's nothing more important than the gospel itself. And so I want to talk about that tonight, today. Let's take a look at the first point. We're going to look at five things about, about not being ashamed or being unashamed with the gospel. Number one, there's a consequence to the gospel. There's a consequence to the gospel. Here's the consequence for what we believe to be the true gospel. Now, we're talking about the gospel of Jesus, not, the, not just the four laws, the, the four points, the four steps, the four ways. God is holy, and he demands holiness. Man is, we are sinners. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wage of sin is death. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Not only that, that we must repent of our sin and, and believe that Jesus died and rose again from the dead and trust him as our Savior and repent of our sin and commit to him the leadership and lordship of our lives. And then the Spirit comes and builds a new life into us. We are then born again by the Spirit of God, and then we're saved. And most of us have, have decided that, that that's the end of the gospel, but there's much more than that. But, but in this gospel context, he is saying to us in this, in this verse, as he opens up this beautiful, this beautiful what I, I want to call the gospel of, of Paul. Because we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John with the gospel of Matthew, Matthew you know, the, the gospel of Mark and Luke and John. I think Romans is really the gospel of Paul. And it's, it's a gospel account that helps us understand that he is not talking about the life of Jesus on earth, but he's talking about the work of Jesus in the heart of the believer who's placed their faith and trust in him. Not only how do we become born again, but now how do we live out that life as a born again believer? And now he is saying, I am going to Rome, and as I go to Rome, I, I can't wait to get there. I know when I get there what they're going to do. Notice, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. He notices and he, he records for us that what they have used in his life and what they're going to use in Rome is a tactic that the enemy has used to shame him about his preaching and his belief in the gospel. It, it's a standard practice to for the world in our lives as Paul's life to, to, to help us understand that they are to, they're going to seek to shame us, to silence us. Notice in Acts 17, 32, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. They laughed. There was a laughter of contentment. Paul's preaching and they laughed at him while he was preaching. Notice in 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the message of the cross is foolishness. That, that word foolishness means moronic. It means nonsense. The message of the cross, that's the gospel. The message of the cross is moronic. They believe that it is nonsense to those who are perishing, but to us who believe are being saved, it is the power of God. Notice again in 1 Corinthians 1.23, but we preach Christ crucified. That's the gospel. And as he's preaching Christ crucified, notice the reaction. It is a stumbling block. It is an offense to the Jew. The Jews saw the gospel as an offense. And that offense 
brought persecution. It brought oppression in Paul's life. And it is, notice he said, it is foolishness to the Gentiles. And this word foolishness means that it is uh, of unprecedented or un, um, uncon, uh, un, un, um, I'm trying to find the word. It is, it is not substantiated. In other words, it is a foolish, self-inflicted opinion that is not that is worthless, it carries no truth, and it has no weight. And they are using now shame in Paul's ministry as he's proclaiming his message to silence him and to render the message ineffective for those who are to hear the message. And Paul says, I am not going to be ashamed of the gospel of Christ when I get to Rome. They're going to try to shame me in believing what I believe, but I am going to refuse to allow shame to have its influence on my life. I am not going to be ashamed. And I ask you, as I sort of talked about it in the introduction, are you ashamed of the gospel? Let's talk about it for a minute. I talk to people all the time about the gospel. And, and you really believe in sin? Really? Really, you really believe in sin? Do you really believe that sin has a consequence? Do, do you really believe that Jesus died on the cross for sins that he didn't commit? I, I don't even believe I'm a sinner, so why would he have to die? Do you really believe that lost people without Jesus as their Savior when they die, they really go to hell? Really? Come on. Do you follow what I'm saying? I mean, there, there, are, there, there is the gospel that, that, is, that, that has truth that our world mocks today. They laugh at, they ridicule, they think we are just... Crazy people with crazy opinions that, that are not substantiated by anything. And so they look at us and they, those, those people are just, they're nuts. And so they laugh at us. They mock us. They mock our message and they seek to shame us. If you're at work, many times we're silent about things at work. Why are we silent? Because they'll seek to shame us. What is shame? Shame simply is an attempt to humiliate you. Shame is an attempt to embarrass you. Shame is an attempt to silence your witness. And the world that we live in today, especially the peers around you, they will use every attempt they can to shame you to the point to silence your witness and to cause you to just internalize, to withdraw, and to just, just kind of build a little cocoon around yourself and not share this important message called the gospel. And we struggle with shame. We struggle with humiliation. Well, if I share what I really believe the gospel says, I'm going to be hum humiliated. I'm going to be embarrassed. I'm going to be ridiculed. I'm going to be laughed at. Am I, am I not? Is that not, not true in your life as it is in the Apostle Paul's life? And there's a consequence to the gospel, and that is that the world will seek to silence us by shame. Secondly, there's a call that's related here to the gospel, and that call is to hold to the truth, to stand firm. Paul says, I am not 
ashamed of the gospel. That word not is a double negative. It simply means that there are no circumstances, there is no situation that would render the result where the apostle Paul would ever be silent because he's afraid of humiliation. He's afraid someone might laugh. He's afraid there might be some consequence or some circumstance where those around him will mock what he is saying. He does not care. There's nothing that could cause him to be silent. Irregardless of all that comes his way, he must communicate. We're going to see that in a minute. There's a call to hold to the truth, to stand my ground in the midst of the world that seeks to cause shame and to silence our witness. Notice in Galatians 1, 6, I want you to know this is interesting, this interesting thing here that happens as the Apostle Paul, in another one of his letters, tries to somewhat correct this this uh, counterfeit gospel. Notice what happens in six, uh, verse 6. I am astonished, Paul is saying, that you are so quickly discerning him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. These people had heard Paul preach the gospel. And they had received the gospel by grace through faith. And somehow someone had sort of weaved their way into the fabric of the church, into the leadership of the church, and began to teach in the church as a leader something that was different than the gospel that they had first received. Verse 7, not that there is another one. How many gospels are there? One. There's only one gospel. There's only one. I ask you, who has the right one? There are many denominations who claim to be the one with the correct gospel. But there's only one gospel by which we are saved. Now think about that. There's only one gospel that's the right gospel. What if we here don't believe in the right gospel? We're doomed. But what if we do and they don't? They're doomed. For there's only one gospel. And what the enemy wants to do, if he can't silence the gospel, he will infiltrate somehow into the community of faith a different gospel than the gospel. And the end result will be the damnation of those who have placed their faith and trust in a false gospel that doesn't result in salvation. Because if you put your faith in any other gospel other than the gospel and you stand before Jesus and you say, well, I'm standing here and I deserve heaven because look at all the things that I have done. He's going to say it's not about what you have done. It's about what has been done for you. Not about what you did, but what Jesus did for you. And notice he says there's only one, but there are some who trouble you. They're causing trouble in the fellowship and want to distort, twist, redefine the gospel of Jesus. Skip down to verse 9. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel that is contrary, different than the one you received, let him be accursed. Let him spend all eternity in a place reserved for those who have, who, have, who have believed in the false gospel that is hell. For all eternity. That's, that's the condemnation for preaching and proclaiming a, a wrong gospel. And there are preachers and teachers all over the world today who are proclaiming and preaching a false gospel, and the end result is damnation. Damnation. 
because they have believed it, they are preaching it, and the result is, it is, is eternal consequence in hell. Verse 10. Notice what Paul says. For I am now seeking to the approval, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Who, whose approval am I seeking? Man's or God's? Or am I trying to please man? That's the root of shame, really. The root of shame is pleasing man rather than God. Because man, apart from God, doesn't like, won't embrace, won't accept the truths of the gospel. We're going to look at it in this study as we, as we dissect this, this, this chapter here. I'm going, to, I'm going to just give you a little uh, preface coming. It talks about, in the last verse, righteousness. The end result of, of a true Gospel is that it reflects the righteousness that comes from the gospel. It, it reflects a lifestyle of repentance that lives in obedience. Not we're living obedience in order to works and to be saved, but it is, is not an addition to, but it is complementary of the gospel that we have received. And today we're saying that I can be a Christian and live my life any way I want to and choose any standard I want to and any social standard I want to and be called a Christian. But he says, or am I trying to please man? If I, were trying, if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. The call is to, pre, is to please the Lord in, in, in the gospel because the end result is that we will stand before God, accountable before him for that which we have stood for and for that which we have believed. The call. Notice the cost. With the call, there's always a cost with, with God, isn't there? There's plenty of benefits, but there's also a cost. For I am not ashamed. I. Interesting, I. For I am not ashamed. And if you read this really quickly, you kind of overlook that because it, it's just so subtle in there. that. And, and if you take the, the original language, you see that the word I... Uh, the personal pronoun I is sort of tucked away with the word ashamed. It, it kind of be, becomes one word. But that word ashamed is a personal pronoun indicating that there's an I. And, and it talks about, and it helps us realize and understand that in this whole concept of being ashamed of the gospel and, and, and allowing the world to silence our witness and allowing us to then compromise our gospel message in order to accommodate a society that doesn't want to embrace it, it's the I that becomes the problem. And the I is always the problem. It's the I, the I in me, because I don't want to pay a price. I, I deem myself valuable, and, and I want to hold on to my relationships, I. Notice what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 11 and 12. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am. Paul is suffering. He's suffering. He has died to himself, yet I am not ashamed because I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. There's a cost involved. Notice suffering. 
your belief about the gospel is going to cost you intimate, close relationships with people that you love and maybe even family members that you're connected with. It's going to cost you. It, it divides families. It, it divides communities. And, and it separates us from everyone and everything else. And, and as a result of that, there will come persecution. There will come a cost. There will be a price to be paid if you don't compromise what you know to be the gospel of Jesus Christ. There will be a price. There will be a cost. Paul understood that. I mean, if you know anything about his story, he was imprisoned, he was beaten, he was, they tried to murder him. He, when he's writing this letter, is in chains in prison, and he is writing from prison and in chains saying, I am here because I believe so strongly that the gospel is what it is, that I am willing to pay the price, whatever comes, to continue to proclaim the gospel. And I think that's one of the reasons why most of us are silent is because we're afraid of the cost, and I gets in the way, and we know that if we project or proclaim or profess or to tell or to share, it's going to cost us something and we're not just simply willing to pay that price because I need that Jesus understood the cost in John 6 22 through 71 I don't have time to read all of this and dissect all this for you but simply put in a short synopsis Jesus said after he had fed the 5,000 early in John 6, and there was some time between the time when he fed the 5,000 to what we're reading now. Read the, read the text later on another time. There were people who were pursuing him after he fed the 5,000, and they were pursuing him because they wanted physical food. They wanted physical food. They were pursuing him for what they could get from him. And there are people still like that today. I'm pursuing Jesus for what I can get, and it's physical, it's not spiritual. Those are the health, wealth, prosperity preachers that you hear. Follow Jesus and get all this stuff. And there's no sacrifice, there's no cost, there's no commitment. And so Jesus said, no, I am the bread of life. And he's talking about spiritual food, not physical food. And he says, I'm the bread of life. And he said, if you want, if you want the bread that I'm giving you, the spiritual life, you need to eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. Similar to the body and the bread that we have at the communion. And they misunderstood him. And when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing himself, that his disciples were grumbling about this. And then he said to them, do you take offense at this? Skip down to verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They no longer walked with him. These are not the 12. They are not on the inner circle, they're not really ones who are totally committed. These are, are what I would call fringe disciples who were following Jesus as long as there was some benefit into their life, some sort of blessing, some sort of food that was physical in nature. And when he said, no, what I came to give you is spiritual life, that's not what I signed up for. And they walk away. But notice, so Jesus then turns to the 12 disciples. Do you also want to walk away as well? There's a cost as a community. There's a cost as a church. There's a cost as a community. Relationships will be at stake if we 
truly believe that the gospel is what it is, the one true gospel, and we live it out in our lives, and we proclaim it with our lips, and we shout it to the rooftops, there will be a cost that will be rendered because of the gospel. Number four, talk about courage. We need courage if we're going to do that. There's a call, right? There's a cost. Now there's courage needed to stand. For I am not ashamed. Is that a statement of wimpiness and cowardice or courage? Do you ever find Paul anywhere in his writings ever being anything but courageous? Now, there are times he admits his weaknesses and his frailties and his shortcomings and his inadequacies, but never a lack of courage, never a cowardice. He never retreats. He never backs up. He never says, no, that price is too high. He never says that relationship is too valuable. He steps up courageously and he says, I will not be ashamed of the gospel when I get to Rome. Those knuckleheads there are going to take my life. He's going to die for the cause of the gospel. And he writes in Philippians 1.20, notice, I eagerly expect. That word eagerly jumped out at me when I read it. and go, dude, this guy's like, like a kamikaze. I, I eagerly <laughs> I'm anxiously, eagerly awaiting and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. How does he have the ability to be this courageous? Verse 21, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. I've got my priorities in line. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. This world has no hold on me. There's nothing that it can offer that I can't forfeit, that I can't let go of, because I know in the end, if and when they take my life, there's much more to gain than anything I could lose in this life. And I choose Jesus and the message of the gospel. And how often are we wimpy and anything but courageous in being bold with the gospel of Jesus? Because we, you know, one of the things about shame is it inflicts fear, fear of humiliation and fear of acceptance and fear of, 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 of loss, fear of what they might say what they might do but when you've got your priorities in line there's no fear and the Holy Spirit can replace that fear with courage if you like 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 Paul can come to the place for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain because I'm convinced as we have said many Sundays for quite some time now there will come a time where some of us in this auditorium today will say reject Christ and live or continue to proclaim Christ and die It's happening right now all across the globe. And it's coming to America at some point. And so we need courage. And lastly, there's a commission here that is ours as well as Paul. 
I am not ashamed of, what is he not ashamed of? The gospel. He's not ashamed of the gospel. He's not ashamed of, 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 of his life. He's not ashamed of his past. He's not ashamed of his present. He's not ashamed of his social position in life or about his standard of living. He's not ashamed of anything other than the gospel. It is, it is that which I am not going to be ashamed of. I am not going to be ashamed of the gospel. For he says in Romans 14 and 15, before verse 16, I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. He's eager. He's eager to preach. Romans 10, 14. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? If we're ashamed of the gospel and we remain silent because we're afraid of humiliation and we're afraid of embarrassment or we're afraid of laughter or ridicule, let me ask you a question. How will they hear the gospel? Because it says in Romans 10, 17, consequently faith comes from hearing the message Faith comes from hearing the gospel, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. How will they hear the gospel if we allow shame and ridicule and laughter to keep us silent and prevent us from sharing the gospel? We are a church that has become silent with the message of the gospel, and I think largely it's not because we're not trained, because we have the most trained church of any era of the church today. We have more tapes, more videos, more YouTubes, more internet stuff, more books, more bookstores. We have more discipleship than any other era in the church history so far. And yet many times we are the most silent of any church in the history of the church so far. Why is that? Because the culture that we live in is helping us understand you can't share the gospel. Did you know they pass a law in Russia now about sharing the gospel if you're not a Russian I can't travel there and preach the gospel anymore. I've been to Russia. I've been to Moscow. I've been to Chelyabinsk in western Siberia and have the opportunity to preach the gospel. I can't do that anymore. It's coming to America in your hometown, Rose Hill, Kansas. It's coming. And you can't get any smaller town than Rose Hill, Kansas. Anybody live in a smaller town than Rose Hill, Kansas? Other than you and I, Cheryl. Let me close with this. I remember being in seminary once, several times in seminary, but when I was working on my master's, not my doctorate, and uh, there was a debate going on about the inerrancy of Scripture and the Word of God and how relevant it was and important it was in the everyday life of the Christian. And we got to talking amongst ourselves, those of us who are students, you know, solving all the theological issues and debating and discussing all the things that were going on in the realms of discussion and theology in school and, and, and denominational politics and all that. And we got this discussion about, here's the question, do I have to have the Bible to share my testimony with someone and they come to faith in Jesus? Do I need the Bible? And we had a we have one of the students, one of my friends, who said, 
you know what? My testimony alone without the Bible can help someone find Jesus. I want you to think about that for a minute. My testimony alone without the Bible can help someone know Jesus as their Savior and Lord. I said, really? He said, yeah. We were standing on the steps of the student center. I remember this conversation like it was yesterday. And it was a few decades ago. So, so, so please tell me, how can someone know they're a sinner without John 3.23? And how can someone know that the wages of that sin is death without Romans 6.23? And how can someone know what Jesus did on the cross without John 3.16? And how can someone know to confess Jesus without uh, Romans 10, 9, and 10? And and so on and so forth. How can they know these things without the message? This book from Genesis 1 to Revelation 21 contains the message of the gospel of Jesus pointing us to the person of Jesus so that through faith in Jesus we can enter into this personal relationship with him that has immeasurable riches beyond our wildest imaginations. You have yet to exhaust the gospel message in your life. I guarantee it. I've got all the degrees I need. I can get a couple more, but I haven't begun to exhaust all that's here. Did you know that when I first got called to preach, I was a student pastor, and student pastors are not too bright, Brother Matt. Why are you, Brother Matt? And God was trying to call me to preach and to do what I'm doing today. And I said, you know, God, I said, I had this conversation with God. And I'm going to finish with this. I said, there's not a whole lot of stuff in here. You know, I can preach that in about a year. And uh, then what? I can use, you know, Reader's Digest and other things like some other preachers do. <clears throat> anyway, I mean, there's, there's not a whole lot here. And, and I realized how dumb that really was. And I felt like Forrest Gump from time to time when I think about that comment, stupid is as stupid does. I could never in a lifetime exhaust knowing the immeasurable riches that are discovered in the gospel of Jesus in this book. And without this book, we don't have a message. And without the message, we don't have salvation. And you have a testimony. If you know Jesus, the gospel has already changed your life, set you into an intimate love relationship with Jesus that has immeasurable riches beyond compare as you grow in your understanding and your application of this beautiful thing called the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the gospel, sometimes in the Bible, it doesn't even say gospel, it just says Christ. They're synonymous terms. And the gospel gets us to the person of Jesus. And as we experience the gospel and its truths and its doctrines and its applications, we grow more and more in love with Jesus every day. And I'm convinced there are many today have a problem with their love relationship with Jesus is because they don't understand the gospel. Because the more you know about the gospel and what he has done for you and what he's doing in you and who he's going to do for you, you just can't 
help but fall in love with him and get to know him more and more and more and more. So as we close, here's the question. Are you ashamed of the gospel? This is basically it. One question. Are you ashamed of the gospel? Would you respond to the gospel if you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus? Don't let shame keep you from coming down this aisle and saying, I need Jesus. The enemy has lied to many people today. Don't admit that you're a sinner. Don't admit that you are, because of that sin, are eternally condemned. And don't admit that you need someone outside of yourself to do for you what you can't do. And his name is Jesus, and you must trust him. Turn and repent from your sin and accept him as your Savior and make him the Lord of your life. Shame has kept many people from admitting that and accepting that reality and inviting Christ into their heart and their life and making him the Lord of their lives. Shame. Are you ashamed to publicly acknowledge him and say, I want to follow Jesus in baptism? Because that's really what baptism is. We've confined it to the church and a baptistry in this neat little place here, but it's really what's supposed to be done on the open door out in the community so that when you were baptized, everyone knew there's a follower of Jesus. And are you born again? baptized believer allowing shame to keep you from experiencing the immeasurable riches of Christ through your testimony and through the life that he wants to live through you. Let's not let Satan rob us of those immeasurable riches as we discover the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Yeah.